0: the Community Conversations podcast published by Blood Advances, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. I am Dr. Margaret Ragney, professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and director of the Hemophilia Center of Western Pennsylvania and associate editor of Blood Advances. I'm your host for today's interview with Dr. Shannon Bates, professor of medicine at McMaster University. Director of the Division of Hematology and Thromboembolism and Holder of the Eli Lilly Canada, May Cohen Chair in Women's Health. Welcome. We are discussing her recently published manuscript, ASH 2018 Guidelines for the Management of Venous Thromboembolism in the Context of Pregnancy. Thank you, Shannon, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Sure. So your recent guidelines are really quite well done and provide very concise and clear guides to physicians who are trying to manage pregnant women. So we certainly congratulate you in that that arena. We have a few questions that I think our audience would like to hear about. So first, how did you assemble your marvelous team and what were the ground rules? in determining recommendations and the strength of those recommendations in women and who evidence-based trials are really limited in number and scope.
1: Thank you. So, we were really fortunate in the makeup of our guideline panel. Our panel included hematologists, obstetricians, a specialist in maternal-fetal medicine, internist, a pharmacist with clinical and research expertise on the guideline topic methodologists with expertise in evidence appraisal and guideline development, and very importantly, two patient representatives. And these panelists came not only from the United States and Canada, but also from the United Kingdom, Europe, and New Zealand. Several of our panel members had participated in previous guideline panels, including the Chester American College of Chest Physician guideline panel, but also guidelines by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the Australian New Zealand guidelines. So they were a very experienced panel, and, and most of us had worked together before, so we knew we would work well as a team. When we were developing the recommendations, we used the GRADE approach, so that's the approach that all of the other Um, guideline panels in this series used, and so the first thing we did is we brainstormed and prioritized questions and what we thought would be important outcomes of interest. And then we recognized that there were going to be limitations in the data surrounding prevention and diagnosis and and treatment of venous thromboembolism in pregnancy. So when we were searching the literature, we also included information from the non-pregnant as well as the pregnant population when we thought we might be able to extrapolate data. And then, like every other guideline panel, we included literature using the traditional stepwise approach. So we used... Um, systematic reviews when they were available, not very often, individual randomized trials when they were available, less often, and then mostly observational studies, you know, case control studies or cohort studies from the pregnant population to to supplement the data um, from the more rigorous methodologies. And then we also considered literature from the non-pregnant population. And then with all guideline panels, we summarized it according to grade methodology and then had a two-day meeting and teleconference where we um, worked through the evidence in a rigorous fashion and considered different perspectives, including the patient perspective, the balance of harms and benefits, the certainty of the evidence, um, resource utilization, and drafted recommendations that we subsequently revised over the ensuing few months.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. So what are the greatest differences in the new guidelines that you authored and the CHESS guidelines we've used in past years?
1: Yeah, so there are differences um, not only in the panel makeup and the questions we considered and some of the recommendations as well. Although we tried to consider the patient perspective um, with the previous chest guidelines, I was involved with them. With our ASH guidelines, as I mentioned, we were really fortunate to be able to incorporate patient representatives into our panel right from the very beginning. So that ensured that when we were addressing questions and, and outcomes, that we were including the ones that patients thought were relevant, as well as the ones that maybe physicians thought were relevant. And it also helped when we were considering patient perspectives as we went through our recommendations. With these guidelines, ASH specifically requested that we not consider questions related to pregnancy loss and other pregnancy complications. Their feeling was that these were less appropriate for a hematology guideline than, say, for an obstetrical guideline. So these questions weren't prioritized, and so unlike in the CHEST guidelines, we didn't include any questions related to that subject matter. But we did include other questions that we didn't have the opportunity to address in the CHEST guidelines, including those related to the diagnosis of deep vein thrombosis and the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. One of the things we tried really hard with this um, recommendation and, and panel and and set of guidelines was to be really explicit about how we were making decisions. So one of the things that we thought was important was to specifically come up with a risk threshold above which we would recommend prophylaxis. And so we did that initially through anonymous voting and then through discussion. And so after that process, we agreed that we would recommend prophylaxis antepartum if the risk exceeded 2%, and postpartum if it exceeded 1%. So hopefully, it will be clear to people how we actually made our decisions as they read through these guidelines. And then, of course, some of our recommendations change because there's new evidence or evidence was reinterpreted, and that perhaps is most obvious in the recommendations we made around prophylaxis for women with no prior history of venous thromboembolism but a hereditary thrombophilia.
0: Okay, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I would like to ask you a question about that. Um, were there any diagnostic differences in making a diagnosis of pulmonary embolism or venous thromboembolism in pregnant women as compared with non-pregnant patients? Was there anything that differed?
1: Well, I think there are uh, the considerations that you have to um, take into account when making a diagnosis or evaluating patients with suspected venous thromboembolism certainly are a bit different. So not only do you have to consider um, the safety and the efficacy or accuracy of the test in relationship to the mother, you also need to consider the relationship of safety for the fetus. So for example, you always want to, whenever possible, minimize radiation exposure to the fetus. And then secondly, it's important to realize that deep vein thrombosis in pregnancy is a little bit different than in the non-pregnant population. First off, it, like pulmonary embolism, hasn't been as well evaluated with respect to diagnostic testing. Secondly, we don't really have um, good pretest probability assessment models that have been extensively evaluated, and thirdly, with deep vein thrombosis in particular, it's much more likely to be very proximal and involve the iliac veins which would not be picked up on a normal ultrasound, which usually just only goes as high as the common femoral vein. So that meant we were, when we were making our recommendations for evaluating deep vein thrombosis in pregnancy, we had to specify that those ultrasounds had to include imaging of the iliac vein.
0: Thank you. That's very helpful. So uh, another question we have is, there really are few data available on direct oral anticoagulants in pregnancy... I think it might be helpful for our audience if we heard a little bit about what your group may have considered and even debated in trying to set some guidelines for such women, given that there may be little data or the data are just beginning to emerge. So we're very interested in where that whole area stands.
1: So that's an excellent question. So I think as our, our listeners will know that Um, The availability of the direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, has really revolutionized the prevention and treatment of venous thromboembolism and then also atrial fibrillation, no doubt. Um, The issue is that there's much less data available, as you mentioned, in this patient population. And again, we not only have to consider safety and efficacy in the mother, we also have to consider impact on the unborn baby. So, what we know is that um, ex vivo studies, so studies using placenta models, have shown that dabigatran and apixaban and rivaroxaban all have the potential to cross the placenta. We weren't aware of any studies evaluating adoxaban similarly. And then studies in rats and rabbit models have shown DOAC-associated reproductive toxicity with dabigatran, apixaban, or dabigatran and rivaroxaban, not so much for apixaban, yet the package insert for all of them, including apixaban, states that these drugs should not be used in pregnancy. So that has been a real um, hindrance, obviously, to using these drugs during pregnancy and to studying these drugs in pregnancy. There are limited data from women who have been, uh, for want of a better word, inadvertently exposed to DOACs during pregnancy. So there have been two um, pharmacovigilance databases published that have included relatively small numbers of pregnancies. So one had 63 pregnancies and another had 233 pregnancies with DOAC exposure, and all you can basically say from the, the results of these database publications is that there's no evidence that there is a high risk for DOAC embryopathy, but we can't say that there's no risk for um, embryopathy or teratogenicity related to DOAC use or for an increased risk of fetal bleeding. So, given that information, the fact that we do have a safe and effective alternative in the form of low molecular weight heparin, even though it is inconvenient, our panel elected not to include DOACs in our list of potential interventions for the treatment and prevention of venous thromboembolism during pregnancy. And what we're hoping is that in the future there may be more data so we can read visit this decision in future iterations of the guidelines, and I think readers should be aware that there is an ISTH, or International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis Registry, that is collecting data on outcomes in pregnancies um, where there is DOAC exposure, and hopefully that will provide us with additional information.
0: Great. Thank you for that. Um, We're interested a little bit in the venous thromboembolism risk in women, especially during the six weeks post and that it's higher than the antepartum rate. So we were wondering why that is, and we would like to have a better understanding of, are there increased risk for venous thromboembolism in women who have had thromboembolism in pregnancy? So it's true, and it's always surprising to people to realize
1: that the risk of venous thromboembolism is actually higher during that period of time after you deliver than, than during pregnancy um, on a daily basis. So, you know, if we're speaking absolute risk, the absolute risk antepartum is the same as the absolute risk postpartum, but of course, the postpartum period is so much shorter than the antepartum period that on a daily basis, the risk of venous thromboembolism at least, is at least 10 times higher um, postpartum than before you deliver. And what we know about that natural history is that that risk tends to fall off very quickly following delivery, so that by the time you're three weeks postpartum, you're at a risk that's approximately equal on a daily basis to the antepartum risk. And by six weeks, you're almost completely back to baseline, although there is a slight tail-off in risk that really lasts out to 12 weeks, but there's not felt to be much absolute benefit in extending prophylaxis beyond six weeks because that absolute increase in risk is, is so very small. No one has ever been able to provide me a really good explanation for why there's an increased risk postpartum compared to antepartum, but given the pattern of the risk, it must obviously have something to do with, with delivery, but that's really as explicit as I can be. I think it's just most important for your listeners to recognize that that risk is there postpartum, and when we talk about pregnancy-associated venous thromboembolism, we're really talking both antepartum and postpartum.
0: That's very helpful to know. Um, in in some of these guidelines, you mentioned that you took consideration of the fetus as well as the mother, and we wondered uh, a little bit about to what degree did you actually consider fetal well-being uh, and maternal thrombotic complications, and, and where how do you manage those two concerns at the same time? Does one take precedent over the other, Um, Do they both uh, lead the way? What are the considerations? Yeah, so that's what makes this topic so complicated
1: is you've got two very important people that you want to optimize their care. So we took fetal well-being into consideration when there were potential concerns about, say, teratogenicity from anticoagulant therapy or diagnostic testing, radiation exposure from diagnostic testing maybe neonatal harm if we were advocating scheduled delivery, and of course, inadvertent anticoagulant exposure um, while breastfeeding. And our recommendations always placed an equal um, weight on both maternal and fetal well-being. So our important maternal outcomes were prevention of maternal death, avoidance of maternal venous thromboembolism, and avoidance of maternal bleeding, and then we also wanted to avoid fetal complications, including loss and teratogenicity. So when we say we put equal weight on maternal and fetal well-being, it might be helpful to give an example. So that means that it was important that our recommendations not deny women effective treatment solely on the basis of the fact that they're pregnant. Which, to be honest, was the case with much older guideline iterations where women were potentially not given treatment um, that perhaps, or the option for treatment that was perhaps beneficial for them because there was a small risk of fetal harm. And the example of that would be women with mechanical heart valves, where guideline panels for years and years and years said only unfractionated heparin or maybe low molecular weight heparin could be used, even though we knew that these were less effective to in, in pregnant women with mechanical valves and that perhaps there needed to be a balancing of the risk to the mother with respect to stroke and valve thrombosis as well as to the fetus. So in our guidelines, we didn't address mechanical valves, but it meant for us that when we were considering treatment or prevention options, we wouldn't deny a woman an effective treatment that was safe and effective as long as, it, um, didn't, as long as there wasn't a, a better alternative for it. So, for example, the example would be the DOACs. So we decided not to utilize the, or even consider the DOACs for treatment or prevention, even though they're more convenient for the mother, and for the mother alone they may be very effective and safe because there's the risk of fetal harm and because we have an effective alternative, even though it is a bit inconvenient in the form of low molecular weight heparin.
0: Thank you. Um, I guess our last question has to do with uh, what is the likelihood, given that a patient has maternal thromboembolism, that she has future risks for embolism later in life? You know, how do these risks relate to what happens during pregnancy, and is there any way to predict those things?
1: Interestingly, there is very little. No long-term data on risks in women who have had a pregnancy-associated venous thromboembolic event. What we surmise from what's out there is that women with a history of pregnancy-associated venous thromboembolism do appear to have a higher risk of events in the future than someone who hasn't had a venous thromboembolic event. And although there are disagreements about the absolute risk long-term What I think most people will agree on is that it doesn't appear to be high enough to justify long-term anticoagulant therapy. So once a woman with a pregnancy-related venous thromboembolic event has received, usually three months, including six weeks of postpartum anticoagulation, though some people will extend that to six months in total, you don't tend to need long-term anticoagulant therapy unless there are extenuating circumstances. Say, for example, a woman would have a poor tolerance of a recurrent event or she never really recovered from her initial event. But even though the risk is low once you complete treatment, that doesn't mean it's zero. So women who have had a pregnancy-related event need to be aware of the signs and symptoms of recurrent venous thromboembolism and know that they need to seek medical attention urgently should they develop. And they also need to be provided with appropriate thrombosis prophylaxis In the future, when they're put in situations associated with a high risk of of venous thromboembolism, so, so for example, major surgery, admission to hospital, or leg casting, and as well, having a venous thromboembolic event in pregnancy would alter recommendations for contraceptive use in the future. So you would want to avoid contraceptives associated with an increased risk of venous thromboembolism. So combined oral contraceptives, Depo-Provera, and the ring, and you would advocate for options that didn't have a, an increased risk. So barrier methods, intrauterine devices, including those with progesterone um, and the progesterone-only mini-pill.
0: Well, this was just wonderful. First of all, congratulations again on such a great job that your team did. It is very reassuring to know that you were so thoughtful about so many of these issues. We really appreciate your concise and clear recommendations today, and uh, we look forward to uh, hearing more in the future about these registries and more information. Thank you so much, Shannon. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Blood Advances Community Conversations. Visit bloodadvances.org to listen to more author interviews and to subscribe to the Community Conversations podcast. Music for the Blood Advances Community Conversations was performed by the Art Topolo Trio and provided by Dr. Art Topello. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.